Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Star Trek edition. We're moving on, folks. We're going back in time to Star Trek for the Voyage Home. Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me in this quest for peace. <laughs> Sorry, I mixed my sequels there. Is Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hello, Tom. A double dumbass on you. Oh, I love that fucking line. I love it so much. I have to say... The I U- think it's the well in front of it. Well, a double dumbass on you. Well, here's what here's what I think. I mean, not, ju- <laughs> not just that line. Um, I think the use of language in the screenplay is magnificent. It's 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 amazing because the the the, the colorful meta the colorful yes. metaphors th- that runner throughout the yes. entire movie is sublime. You're abs- you're a hundred percent right. Uh, the way that late 20th century idioms which you know are wittily referred to as colorful right. metaphors as, uh, uh, they start out as as interruptions yeah that lead to laugh lines and by the end of the screenplay by the end of the script they're almost unnoticeable you know just you have wait like, a damn minute Captain. one damn minute admiral <laughs> yeah or and admiral yeah i don't, I don't want to make too big a thing out of this but you know i watch a lot of modern day fantasy franchise movies because i have a five-year-old right more, more more than i would care to i should say um, everything more... except harry potter <laughs> you gotta have you gotta have a limit somewhere um <laughs> uh and i was I, i've been thinking a lot recently about why i find the screenplays of those movies so so unsatisfying and there, there was a, a guest on star wars minute recently who 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 kind of half put it together for me and said that you know the the dialogue especially when it's related to comedy in these in 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 the kind of modern franchise era is sarcastically repeating back what someone just said mm-hmm. and i'm like that's exactly what it is but it's even more than that there's this kind of trailing off <laughs> in the name of the comedy of awkwardness yeah you know which works brilliantly in an episode of the office but in the hands of the people making these movies, it, it's completely out of context and feels wrong. And it strikes me, you're actually going out of your way strategically to not write the kind of rich, erudite, yes. interesting right. dialogue right. that a movie like Star Trek for The Voyage Home does. And it's just kind of, it baffles me because that when you think about it like that, you think it would be so easy to elevate your film. Yeah. By sitting down and writing this kind of dialogue and thinking linguistically about what's going on in your screenplay, like well, it, and here, of course, here it doesn't. It's not. I don't know. It's not as hard as it might seem to me. Well, but but I, it, it gets it gets hard in the next movie because <laughs> yes, <laughs> everything gets harder in the next movie. Of course, we're talking about Star Trek for the Voyage Home today, but up next is Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier. Yeah. 
And that's a movie where Shatner is constantly trying to wedge comedy yes. into wedge places where it doesn't was. belong. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's, what, that's what works so great about this movie is that, I mean, I, I kind of think you were speaking to this, but I, I mean, it just feels seamless, Tom. Seamless. It feels, yeah. it's, it's, it's just, it's layered into the screenplay. It's layered into the writing in a way that is so clever. Mm-hmm. And it's so satisfying. I mean, it really it it kind of makes the whole movie. This this I think there's two reasons why the comedy always works in this film. It's because it's always authentic to the characters. Uh huh. Yeah. And it only ever sharpens the story. It never dulls it. Never dulls it. Right. I I I you know I challenge you to find a moment of comedy in this movie that does not speak to either one of those uh yeah designs and as you you know as you're kind of alluding to almost the opposite is true with star trek five yes um all right well ladies and gentlemen we are talking star trek for the voyage home a 1986 movie, once again directed by Leonard Nimoy. Uh, look, I think we talked about this in the last episode, Tom, but yeah. of course he directed Star Trek Three, so we have that. We have Three Men and a Baby, Funny About Love. And it's funny that like the two names that appear the most in these sequels mm. are Nicholas Meyer and Leonard Nimoy. Yes. And with both of them, we're seeing direction that seems to at least indicate that we're dealing with pros, like people who understand how to make a movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yet uh, their filmographies are kind of small. Yeah, I mean, in relation in relation to this film, I guess if, you know, if there's a kind of if there's a if there's a third element of why the comedy works so well, it's the split second timing of the direction and the editing, yeah. which of course Leonard Nimoy is chiefly responsible for. Um, yeah, although, I mean, you know, it's harder to see, it's harder to, to, to look across the filmography from Star, uh, Leonard Nimoy as a director, if you're just looking at Star Trek 3, with this movie, you know, I, I can tell yeah. this is the director of Three Men and a Baby, like, I, I can make yes, that, agreed. I can make that mental yeah. association in a way that, you know, I can't, while I see incredible competency, and, you know, you could make an argument that, that Len, you know, Leonard Nimoy sort of elevates Star Trek Three to something better than it maybe is. Um, right. Here, it feels like it, there's, a, there's a comfort with the kind of material uh, that, that you get from someone whose filmography is based mostly in comedy. It feels to me like this movie... Uh, what bears the stamp of Leonard Nimoy? Like he wanted to take the franchise in this direction. Yeah, I think he. I think he knew what his wheelhouse was. Well, he and so once he once yeah. they came up with this story idea, I think he was taking the franchise to a place where he knew it would be a different kind of story, but a super successful story. Well, he knew this was his wheelhouse, but he also understood that this was where the series needed to go next. Mm-hmm. That I think is the is is the reason why this works so well. I mean, the the, the project I think of this film, spearheaded by Leonard Nimoy, and he's talked about this, was really simple. 
you know, we, we want to reverse the trend of two uh, increasingly dark, progressively bleak sure. films. We want to make a movie that's lighthearted and optimistic. But but it's still connected. Because remember, this is the third part in a mini trilogy. Yeah. Not only connected uh, narratively, but in in sort of making this adjustment, Nimoy kind of unlocked what I think is the essence of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It, it's an idealistic, optimistic uh, view of the future that allows space for commentary on the socio-cultural problems of our time. Right. Th- there's no better vehicle for that than this film. Sure. I don't think that was the... In- I don't. I-, I think that was inadvertent to some extent. I don't think it was accidental because everyone is working at capacity to make this the best possible film. Yeah. And somehow, organically, out of that came, to me, like, the, the nucleus of what Star Trek is. Mm-hmm. Of when Star Trek is good, this is what it is. Yeah, right, right. And yet, right. and yet, if you look at, if you stand back and look at it, you think you have gone in, you have gone in like polar opposite of the last the, two the, films. The, the road, the, you know, the path of of most resistance <laughs> that you could take to get there. Right. But that just makes it a better film because you you think it's like they're not, you know, they're not making any lazy choices here at all. No. And yet they got to the heart of what Star Trek is and was. And, you know, it, it's that's why, for me, it's the best film in the series. It's, I mean, on any, on any given day, it could swap places with Wrath of Calm. But yeah. Just that, I, just, just that ability to stand back and go, I have this, you know, what they do here, what they do here outdoes even that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, and it's funny, I was talking with friends the other day about this movie and they were like oh is that the one with the whales and it sounded yeah, a little I dismissive and i i was you like this lot. is a great movie the one with the whales. go back and an watch it friends right exactly exactly <laughs> and uh i mean i have i have quibbles with the script that are i mean so minor barely worth mentioning but that's why star trek to the wrath of khan yeah. is at the top of my list um, you know, I, have those I think same, there's those a lot of convenient I... storytelling in this yes, particular definitely. script, but those those literally are my only. Uh... I have more notes for this than Star Trek II: Wrath of Khan. I think it's just the overall the overall feeling that this movie gives me is 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 better than than uh, than Wrath of Khan somehow. It's it's like the it's like well, the difference between yeah, like the I difference mean I get that, between, but it's the difference between like you know. A great meal, I don't know. It's what 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 the people barbecue aficionados say about you know the the bread that <laughs> you choose. Like you know, it's like you have a shitty piece of bread with a great piece with with perfectly cooked meat, and somehow it's better than if you had like the best the best roll ever. Have. Right, right, right. And I right. feel like some for some reason that that you know it's like it's just got that little bit of white bread that puts it over the edge. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's All that's right. about that's about like taking a lot of risks, some of which don't pay off, mm-hmm. but the, but the whole thing pays off in a way that's better than anything else you could imagine. Well, I mean, you know, and and everything that happened with this movie kind of bears out what you're saying. It had eighty two percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is uh, still under con, but this is the the highest grossing movie. 
in the yeah. series. You know, 20, a budget of $25 million, $16.8 million on its opening weekend. In the USA and the world, 109.7. Yeah. Uh, and I can... I mean, I remember this movie coming out and people, like, people talking about it, saying, mm-hmm. this movie, this Star Trek movie, it's like nothing else. You have to go see it. It's so fun. It's so much fun. It's it, it's like it's like nothing else, and yet and yet that that's the that's what keeps me coming back to this film. It's a unique experience that that has somehow distilled what Star Trek is, mm-hmm. and yet it goes against. All the all the sort of story and character and theme things that we're used to in right. Star Trek. I mean, it, the funny thing about the movie is that it it uh, at the outset you see the you know with the probe and all of that, and it's making the weird sounds and it's causing all kinds of problems, and that feels like an episode story. It feels I'll go, like I'll go, it feels like something that could be wrapped up in a half hour. That's not worthy, maybe, of a of of a major motion picture, and yet this movie makes it work. Well, it's very. I gotta say, like, it must have been really disconcerting in 1986 to 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 see a Star Trek movie that begins with a mysterious probe object in space. <laughs> because you're thinking this is gonna be the motion picture too. Yeah, right. At that point. And the fact that, you know, not only, I mean, another another remarkable thing about this movie is it sort of fixes the mistakes of, of that, that first line, movie. It's essentially the same storyline. Right. <laughs> uh, as, um, so it fixes all those, um, all those mistakes. But you're absolutely right. You know, it is a half hour story. The screenplay construction is so intricate. Yeah. You've got this kind of, you've, you've got this A to B which, as you said, could be like an epic, like a bottle episode. They've just got to get home, right? They've got to right. go from Vulcan to Earth, and yet you go halfway between A and B. You do a slingshot around the back of A. <laughs> yes, right. And you know the you could and and at that point you could go straight from you could take that slingshot to B. <laughs> you could take that trajectory to B. But what they do, what they then do. Is that they have a like a um I don't know like a negative C or D. I was gonna say they go to D yeah <laughs> because you've got the collapse of the dilithium crystals which is a narrative obstacle mm-hmm. you've got the, the when are the whales gonna be released dilemma that's so you've got these two time crunches in there yeah so, and then but at the end you go to B yeah yeah so this is what I mean it's like it's the road less tra- you're taking the narrative road less traveled and along the way. You're creating more obstacles for your heroes. I, I don't know any other screenplay that that, that works manages to... and pulls it all off. Right, right. <laughs> it's magnificent. So they have they've taken like a half hour episode of Star Trek and they've kind of worked around it to turn it into a two hour movie. Right, and and I mean going beyond that, this movie is successful enough. It has four Oscar nominations: cinematography, mm-hmm. sound, sound effects, original score. I'm so surprised that none of those are for screenplay. I am too. I, or, I mean, that literally or, I mean, was my next bit, question, but I. It's a bit early to be giving, you know. It's because I, I think, I think there's still a stigma about fantasy fran- franchises Probably. at this point in history. To, to sort of, but I mean, some of the acting in this movie is 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 oh, certainly so good. Oscar nomination worthy. Uh, I, I don't know any other way to put it. Yeah, you know, 
at least in my reality. I think this movie shows the natural chemistry between Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner better than any other part of this entire franchise. It's, it's, yeah, I I don't know about that. I I think it's pretty good. I think it's pretty strong in the last, I I mean, my favorite, my favorite scene is uh, between Bones and Spock is in the last movie where they, they, you know, he, he finally admits that he's missed him. Mm hmm. Um, but that's the other strength of this film is it's building on that, it's building on two films worth of storytelling. Wow. Um, at any given, at any given time. Right. Uh, and you know, a whole t- television series canon. Yeah, there's that. But and it I just... fluidly incorporates all of that. I mean, if you look at Star Trek now, that is their biggest problem is they've got to contend with everything else. Yeah. And they just don't know. How they don't to know do how it. to do it. Right. And this they is need like, John Favreau. Is, yeah, and they here they just kind of brush it off, you know. Lines like, we've done this before. Slingshot around the sun. We've done this before. You've lied before. Yeah. Remember that? I mean, basically, they don't go this far, but they say, remember that episode where you had to lie? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that kind of stuff. And it, I it's cannot like, lie. It's not a lie. It's like... Exaggerate. You, <laughs> exactly. If you don't put too much on it, if you get the tone right, you can get away with murder. Yeah. I mean, in this film, they reinvent the entire uh, medical history of the 23rd century mm-hmm. in, in one scene. And at the end of the scene, you go, you know what? It's worth it. <laughs> it's that funny and that good. I'm really glad they did this. Right. Let the next generation people figure out a workaround. So the, the, what's funny about that is be, because of that, it's, it's almost the only reason it works because otherwise you're just having Chekhov in the hospital because you want like a Keystone Cops moment. It, Completely. It feels like, it feels weak. You know what I mean? It feels like one of those screenplay things where you said, well, you want to get this movie to an hour 47 or 53 or whatever the, the time is. Yeah. Uh, instead of it being an hour and 38 or what, you know what I mean? So we have to add this complication but when you add that thing with the medical perspective of the 23rd century, yeah, I think you're right. The suddenly it becomes worth it to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it gives Bones some actu- something actually medical to do, right? Which again is thinking on a level that a lot of the you know for most of these films, Bones is just there. Yeah, right. In this film, he is actually allowed to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the part of Star Trek, and it's funny because. Since this movie came out, one of the moments I always remembered was him giving those pills to the old yeah. woman in the hospital who needed dialysis. And part of that I is never because, forgot it. Part of it is because it works well conceptually, even though, it, you know, it canonically it fucks things up. Because, you know, right. in, in the original series, they still need, like, organ transplants. Mm-hmm. You see, like, people die from, like, you know, lack of blood. And that sort of stuff. So yeah. to go from that to a, a pill that can grow a kidney is quite something. But <laughs> it works conceptually, you know, as, as you're saying, gives gravity to that scene. It gives it a dramatic backbone to that scene. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, again, it's that split second comic comedic direction. Right, exactly. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to air out an old favorite. The most important person in the comedy movie is the director. Right. You know, that that scene doesn't work if it doesn't have those split second directing editing decisions. Well, and, and your favorite to... thing is that he just stands out of the way. Yeah. 
He lets the actors do it. Right, but and you know he knows exactly when it knows exactly when that old lady is wheeled into frame and then wheeled out of frame. Yes, right. And if they if you do it a moment sooner or later, the joke doesn't land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the level we're working at. You're literally just and, catching her passing by when when yeah. she's cured. Well, every and every single like one liner or comedy moment scene in this movie has to have that has to be have that sweet spot and they all do mm-hmm. there's not one moment that doesn't yeah no i, I agree mean, actually i think uh maybe in the final scene of the movie but we'll get there all right well it uh like Shat- it looks like shatner's already started filming five i know in, in the final <laughs> scene of the film <laughs> um I, I, you know, when I first rewatched this, I, you know, we'll start with the opening credits. Uh, I had forgotten about the Challenger dedication. Yes. Uh, that is, I've heard that so many times from so many different people. Really? <laughs> and I think it is, you know, like, it's just impressive, right? You're impressed by the sentiment. Mm-hmm. The fact that they get it. They do it pre-title rather than post. What is more conventional, which is like in the in the closing credits, and getting it in the movie the same year as the disaster happened. Right. And obviously, you know, in and of itself, this is a this is a good choice. But it also tells me this movie is capable of making good choices. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right. It, yeah. It's a really sure sign that you're in safe hands. That's interesting. Um, you're right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then it's you get a sense that like the ch- the the change in tone to something lighter comes almost immediately. I have a note title. about that in the, the titles title... with the, with the music. Well, the titles transport in. Yes. <laughs> okay, we've not seen that before. Yeah. Um, the music. I by my note says Leonard Roseman. Uh huh. Do you remember where we've heard Leonard Roseman before? Ooh, not offhand. Uh, in both Beneath and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Oh wow! He's the, he did the soundtrack to both those movies. And I think once we get to the whaling scenes in this movie, we we yeah right. He's really plugging some of that. Yeah, <laughs> and quite rightly that his music is responsible for us thinking that late twentieth century humanity is the villain of this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, but um, I but my note is you know these opening credit music notes are are really going to let you know what kind of movie this will be. Yeah, yeah, uh, they, they, it has a kind of so it gives it a variety show sitcom feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, both the both music and image in in the titles, and there's a kind of sleigh bellish quality to the to the soundtrack, which made me stop and think for a second. <laughs> Bear with me on this. <laughs> Is this the Star Trek holiday special? <laughs> did they did they have their own version of the holiday special, but it worked. Right, exactly. <laughs> it was everything it was supposed to be. The, the Star Wars holiday special was meant to be, but failed it to be. Star That's Trek funny. figured out how to do it. Um, Maybe if Leonard Nimoy was directing... Or writing instead yeah. of Bruce Valanche. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's that's entirely true. I think I'm struck by, again, 
thinking of thinking that none of this should work. It really shouldn't be as good as it is. The number of writers involved in the screenplay. Yeah, exactly right. Normally, that's a sign. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. But you know, that actually enhances the film. The fact that you know, there's there's lines in this movie where you can go, "That's a Nicholas Meyer line," or Mm -hmm. you know, you 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 sense everyone's contribution. Yeah. As the screenplay goes on, like everyone's voice is in there somewhere. Um. It's actually like the perfect example of collabor of like writing collaboration. That's a, yeah, you know, right. The the Nicholas Meyer literary quotation database. Well, yeah, know, exactly. Full force right. in this it's, movie. it's 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 everywhere. You know exactly which lines he wrote. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about this, I think, on the ranking episode. You know, this is the most literate series, maybe, yeah. in film. Period. You know. Yeah, I mean, what strikes me more in this movie, as well as literacy, is, again, what I said at the beginning, you know, is use of language. Mm -hmm. So it's not... In in Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country, you know, literary quotation's kind of a default. And there's literary quotation in this movie, but they add to it just a kind of a flair for language. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the treatment of language as a historical construct. Yeah. You know, like it's as it's as um, it's as intelligent about the English language as it is about English literature, Mm -hmm. which. Well, because it shows what what elevates this above even the other great movies in the series. Yeah, because, I mean, we, we, you know. What I like about this movie is that you can have it as as banal as, uh, you know, but like they say in your century, I don't even have your number. But that, that and that and that's that's the that's the only bit of comedy in the movie that doesn't work for me. Right. <laughs> but because this is how Shatner says it, because I don't even have your telephone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 my overall point was it can go from that. Which I was going to say, too, is like sort of the low point, but up yes. through, you know, the number of authors that we're, we're, you know, draining knowledge from or referencing. Yeah. Uh, where even H. the... Lawrence. Yeah. I mean, it just goes um, on and Melville, on. Hamlet. It never stops. It, ne- it, it never stops. And in the middle of it, the kind of sweet spot between the two, between like the, the sort of, you know, language and literature is this, is this notion... Um, using the time travel context of this uh, to suggest that, you know, like pulp writers like Harold Robbins became literary giants in the 23rd century. Mm-hmm. Like the best, mo- best moment, arguably the best moment in the film is when Captain Kirk mentions Harold Robbins and uh, Spock immediately responds, oh yeah, the giants. <laughs> and it's just like... <laughs> And, you know, it goes back to that idea that, you know, right. in his time, Shakespeare was considered low culture. Yeah. It's like, why wouldn't this author that we think of as writing, you know, good trash mm-hmm. would become like the 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 Shakespeare of uh, of the of the 23rd century? And I'm trying to like I'm looking at my notes. It's this movie where um, doesn't doesn't Shatner say, you know, all I ask for is a ship and a star to steer by. And mm-hmm. I think uh uh, McCoy said, "Does McCoy say that it's Shakespeare?" Or, but 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 what I love is that Leonard Nimoy corrects him and says it's yeah, Macefield. Yeah. Like, that's it. And I just and love when he's like, "Are you sure?" 
and and that's why you know rather that's why we're having like Nicholas Meyer involved right makes a difference you like you actually see the difference it's not it's not too many cooks spoil the broth it's it's like you know they're just it's like too many cooks putting the right amount of seasoning yeah into the broth at just the right time <laughs> I love it I love it all well uh why don't we take a break and then we'll we'll yeah we're through we're through the titles we, yeah, Let's go. exactly <laughs> I was gonna say we've gotten through the titles and then we'll dive straight in when we come back how about that not not even in the mirror universe would this be a short show <laughs> all right ladies and gentlemen stay tuned we'll be right back I like to think I know something about beer but nowadays, even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day, you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need. The Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing, barely starting... To discuss Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, directed by Leonard Nimoy. Uh, let's talk, well, let's let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. <laughs> We're about at the beginning of the movie, so let's yeah. start talking at about it. At the beginning yeah. of this movie, uh, our crew uh-huh. is on planet Vulcan, but somehow, for some reason, there's still a trial going on <laughs> without their presence. Well, this is the thing. I mean, this, <laughs> this is one of those convenient moments for me, you know. Well, well, yeah, but it can be explained because the the the, the preliminary hearing. Um, it that's combines, true. It is a combines, preliminary. Well, no, I mean, I'm not making excuses, it, but it, it's basically combining two of Star Trek's favorite things: sitting around in Star Trek, watching Star Trek, and yes. putting Kirk and putting Kirk on trial. The choices they make, where they're showing. The Enterprise blow up. Yes. And I think, what camera's recording that? Other than the camera that recorded for the movie. But that's it. It goes back to, you know, the the, the men, in the original series, the Menagerie, when they're they're sitting watching the unaired pilot of the cage. It's that that's the lineage that's being plugged here. Also the multiple episodes and movies in which Kirk is on trial. Yes. They yeah. love that shit. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they they love it so much he doesn't even have to be there for them to give him a trial as you as you said well i mean one of the last lines is there shall be no peace so long as captain kirk lives i mean that's you, just uh, here, that cracks me up for you do you think they knew how perfectly they were setting up the sixth movie with that line oh i don't I think put so. nothing past them but it's i mean 
It could not be more perfect. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> that ambassador walked straight out of that scene and into the beginning of the Undiscovered Country. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but of I mean, the other, I mean, the other obvious purpose of it is, you know, uh, is the serial sequel where we're trying to find a way, a, a means by which we can organically recap what happened in the last film, who lived, who died. Yeah. This is a way of doing it that that, that doesn't seem clunky. Um, it also reminds you, this really is a serial, mm -hmm. right? Cap Captain Kirk is not going to get off with a slap on the wrist. Right. It's nine violations of Starfleet regulations. Yeah. There is no resetting in this trilogy. Right. He is going to answer for what he did. Every action has aftermath and consequences. That's one of the things I love about this mini trilogy. It's just... And know, this I movie just... in particular, you know, because... Are we still talking about Genesis? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fucking still talking about We're still Genesis. Talking Genesis about... will not go away. <laughs> Built by Kirk's son. Yeah. It's like, it's like, can you find... It's like, how can you find more wrinkles in the Genesis storyline? They find it. They do. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. And this is where we start... And I like that they, they... I like the... You know, there's no getting around the fact that these people work in sort of a mil military industrial complex kind of place, you know? Completely, yes. And despite the fact that they're characters we know, characters we love, they're still wrapped up in that. And there's never yeah. a moment where the movies forget that. Because no. meanwhile, back on Vulcan... They're all voting to go back and and take their comeuppance. They're 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 gonna take their licks. They know that they yeah, that under they, the guise of of the rules and regulations that they set forth in this in 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 the military complex that they partake in, they know that there are gonna be consequences. And they are they are of the mindset of yes, we will go back. We did yeah. what we wanted to do. We saved our friend. Now we'll go back and we'll 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 take our lumps. And even what's great about this film is when they go into the past, they still find a way to make this a naval submarine movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> By having an actual nuclear submarine. By having submarine. an actual submarine, yeah. <laughs> and then when they get back to the future, they turn the ship into, they turn the spaceship into a submarine. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. And, you know. That's Plus, the, we get a great matte painting. It's the most matte painting looking matte painting I have ever seen. I know. <laughs> and I'll have more to say about that in the credit check. Really warmed um, my heart. <laughs> it warmed my heart as well. I love um, because they put live if, action with the matte painting. If you Google search the word matte painting, that comes up. <laughs> uh, that's um, great. And it, but what you're talking about, that sort of, na sort of old-timey naval imagery. Yeah. The, the the I guess it's not imagery, it's logic. It's it's like a naval yes, logic, logic yeah. that, that the series works by. It gives us our first the first joke of the movie, which is that they've uh, renamed the bird the of bounty. the HMS Bounty. I always every time I see the HMS Bounty, I always think I'd love for the bird of prey to disappear except that. Yeah. <laughs> That's really that piece of graffiti just can't just be floating through the air. I can't convert. <laughs> um yes I mean, it's, it's but it's really interesting to me that like this 
this film, like all the great movie comedies, if you if you think if you actually think about great, you know, from I guess they still understood this in the eighties. We don't have them now. We we used we had them all the way through classical Hollywood cinema. You actually watch the watch like the greatest film comedies of all time. They don't put that comedy up front. Mm-hmm. They build the dramatic backbone of the of the of story. the story itself. Yeah, you sure. You get like two. You think it happened one? I'm talking about films like it happened one night. Mm-hmm. Uh, some like it hot. You know. Yeah. They, they sort of build the dramatic backbone, and then they gradually, they, they sort of, they fold in the comedy gradually, and it builds and builds throughout. And that's why those movies are also considered great movies, not just great comedy movies, I think. Sure. But you have it exactly the same here. Like, the beginning of this film is dramatic. It yeah. turns into a comedy, and right. that is as, as much a sign to me of a great comedy movie as anything. And obviously, Leonard Nimoy is smart enough, and the screenwriters are smart enough to know that that is the way to go. Mm-hmm. That is the way to build comedy. Don't, don't like, you know, don't cold, There's cold a... clush them. Yeah. <laughs> don't cold clush the audience with it. That's how you do it. Um, the other thing that really impresses me about these opening sequences, besides them being like dramatic rather than comedic in nature, is that it feels like Star Trek's really putting his money where his mouth is in terms of diversity in these opening scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, we have an African-American admiral and captain. Who's going to come back in two movies to be a villain, but... (laughs) Yeah, so so let let me talk about the good before we go into that, okay? (laughs) So we've got... One of them is a woman. Yeah. Uh, We've got Michael Berryman representing, you know, differently bodied actors. Sure. We've got uh, VJ from uh, Octopussy, you know, uh, representing people of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, this is it's like diversity in world and out of world as well. There's a cross species diversity to Starfleet that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, right down to the planet of the Joan Rivers spaceball robot people. I don't. We've never <laughs> been. We've never been back to that planet. But okay, fair enough. All are represented here. But you're absolutely right because it's Star Trek. It always comes at a cost. Yeah. And you've got Brock Peters, who, yeah. let's not forget, is Tom Robinson from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Being remodeled as a villain in Star Trek VI. He, uh, and despite also, that, I, st- I like what I do like about it is the continuity. The, the continuity is great, except when you find out how it absolutely came about. But we'll talk about that All right. then. All right. Um, <laughs> it, wasn't as, it wasn't as deliberate as you think. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and then the uh, the the female captain. Yes. Um, but the thing is, both those actors were then recast in later Star Trek TV series as the relatives of, uh, respectively, Geordie and Captain Cisco. Oh. So, so <laughs> you again, you get you get anything progressive in Star Trek, you get at a price. You get, the yeah, price right. Is, all the black people are related. Is a regression. Is a regression. Yes. Yeah. All the <laughs> but for now, if you don't think about that, this is great. Yeah. This is exactly where this series should be heading. Also, the fact that it feels like a genuine fictional, ongoing fictional universe. Yes. Right. Because of the cameos, you've got Grace Lee Whitney as uh, Rand and um, Major Barrett as uh, Sure Chapel. Uh huh. 
just kind of floating around, giving a sense that this is, you know, this is an ongoing fictional universe mm-hmm. that we're building here. So I, I just love these scenes so much. I think they work so well. Uh, I do too. In, se- in setting up this movie and sort of, you know, moving the franchise along in, in politically. Yes, there's that, and, and narratively too. I mean, yeah. Like I said, like a lot of those characters are going to come back. Maybe some of them become villains. But this movie forget this movie <laughs> forgets nothing. No, this movie could have easily just said had a throwaway line that said Savik went back home or Savik Savik did something Savik left. <laughs> so, literally, you could do the Poochie Savik went back to her planet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Except she's on her planet. That's the problem. Yeah. So <laughs> just lift the animation cell. Yeah. But 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 this movie takes the time for Kirk to say uh goodbye. This is the end. Uh, and well this movie's so good at wrapping again like there it takes the time to wrap up yeah. the trilogy, right? And this is the first sign of that because right. it's not yeah. enough like you say it's not enough that she just I mean, it is essentially it, it's a it's a cameo, but it's a continuity cameo, right? Right. Because she's like, I need to tell you that your son died as a hero. Yeah. And that's important. That's really, really important. Sure. And of course, they didn't do the pregnancy storyline. Yeah. That would have given Savick more to do, but you know, the best moment that Robin Curtis has as Savick is that moment in this movie. I agree. In both in both movies. I agree. Um. And it, it, you know, it just resolves things so satisfactorily. Um, we see Spock's mother, Amanda, mm-hmm. who we haven't seen since Journey to Babel in like 1960. Whatever it is. 66, yeah. 67. Uh, that's a big deal. A really um, big deal. And I also like, I like their conversation. It's great. The computer knows you're half human. How do you feel? Honestly, like th- this is another instance is what you could have, and like, this is great Spock... screenplay writing because it's going to come back. Yeah, you, you could. They use the springboard of Spock's death as a way to develop his character. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's again. I think we've said this before in this series. It's a reset that allows you to develop to grow <laughs> the character reset that yeah. allows for growth. Yeah. Uh, and they could have you, they they could have forgotten about it. They could have sure. Thought, well, may, maybe they we could have wanna... just started yeah. this movie at not zero, but you know what I mean. In terms of they could have, it just could have been a reset. It could have been Spock's back, but and, he's not. But he's not. He's Spock before any. You know, he's Spock pre the first time we see him in the original series. Exactly. Mentally. And what I, what I like about it too is that they reference it in this movie. They he himself has a line that says, my relearning has only been from the point of view as a Vulcan. Yes. So I love these moments where Kirk, in this movie and the next movie, keeps saying things like, don't you remember? Also, I'm so impressed that they managed to create, like, a. it's 1986 and they create a computer with graphics that have not dated. Mm-hmm. They just went, what is the Vulcan aesthetic? We'll build a computer around that. Yeah, It, right. it doesn't look like a mid-80s computer. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it, I just think it's, 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 uh, it's magnificent. Um, it's also, I mean, again, I'm trying to think of the perspective of someone who's never seen this and is seeing this in 1986. This section on Vulcan, you're getting the sense that they're going to, 
be in the bird of prey for the whole movie there mm-hmm. will be no enterprise in this film right yeah and i don't think people that would have expected that at all i think the easier solution would have been to sort of you know like the well the easier know, solution comes at the end of the movie without any you know in a, in a big jump of logic kind of way but okay i'll put but, that aside but it's like i don't know in the back of your mind you're probably thinking oh well starfleet will have built a new enterprise and they'll send it to pick these guys up like mm-hmm. the idea of them not flying around in the Enterprise is just you. you go yes, to right. Any, you you what you do any work around in your head cannon, but but that's like, another brilliant part of the screenplay because they got to be cloaked. <laughs> they have to be unseen. Yeah. So that you know that's what makes it work. This but movie, they're flying around in an enemy ship. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but they have lines that count for that. Yes, absolutely. They, you know, yeah. When um, Chekhov is saying, "Yeah, I mean, I've done this because I don't want to get blown away on our way back to Earth." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you have the, you know, it, also in the back of your mind, as someone who's never seen that, you've got the dramatic tension of: Will Spock ever be the same? Will he ever be able to relate to this crew in the same way? Mm-hmm. Will he? Will he ever have the same? Well, a lot of that manifests that through has. McCoy. It's uh, that's yeah. I mean, it's all great. It is it is all great. It just uh, it fall, you know develops their relationship, but it was Star Trek three shows their relationship growing, and now it's facing an emotional impasse. Yeah, so it's great serial storytelling, great soap opera. Yeah. Um, Me- I, I, meanwhile, oh, the probe I, is fucking shit up on Earth. I've got to, I've got to bring I've got to bring us down for a second. Okay. Because uh, listeners will probably not necessarily have, have clocked that we had a little bit of a break in recording these episodes. And since we last recorded, <laughs> we have lost both Nichelle Nichols, yeah. Lieutenant Nahura, and David Warner, uh, who is in two of these films. And of course, Nahura is in the original well, series and all of these films. I have breaking news as well. Oh, shit. That literally just popped up on my phone, but it is not Star Trek related. Okay, okay. I don't want to hear it. Okay. <laughs> They'll know by the time they're listening to this, but this is direct. This is directly relevant. But because my next note is an Uhura note, and I just I just wanted to acknowledge that because a little shout out, a little shout out because one of the one of the kind of racial stereotypes that Ahura in the original series was never able to shed was this idea that she was a, a space telephone operator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when she is modifying the sound of the probe, yeah, she turns into Gene Hackman from the conversation. Yes, I know. And you, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you are left in no doubt that she is way more than, you know, yeah. Mabel on the switchboard, right? Of this course. Is, like she and I just love that moment because it, it without putting too much on it and advancing the plot. So the and, character but, grows. Yeah. And what I like, too, is that. Without it, I mean, it, it's one of those things, too, where it seems, it, you know, uh, nobody except the enter- the people of the Enterprise thought about this. Yeah. Uh, you know. But, but you can make that logical leap because it's Spock who says only a yeah. fool would think that o- there's only human intelligence, which leads them to animals, which leads them to whales, which leads to 
Kirk saying, uh, why don't you change for density and salinity mm-hmm. and this yeah. and that, which she could do because she's great at her job. And, exactly. You know I mean? But like, that, that's, the, that's the thing. It's like redefining her role yeah. in a way that it, that is less caught up with those racial stereotypes of um, manual labor. Mm-hmm. Um, I got it. I'm so Im- I was so impressed by either Nimoy or his assistant, either or who does a fantastic job adjusting the focus in the conversation between the central trio. Mm-hmm. Cause you could have, I mean, you could have, your choice is you go shot reverse shot or you keep it as a long take. Right. And you gently adjust focus where you, on the, uh, to, to wherever the actor who's speaking is. Yeah. And I just think, you know, you talk about pros, that's a professional move. That's going, we don't need to, to cut the scene into pieces. Right. Let them act. I'll just I'll just move the camera. I'll just refocus I'll do the my camera thing. where I need to. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's not about comedy, but it's the same logic of direction, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But speaking of comedy, this is like the comedy starting. We see it's like yeah. a runway. Yeah. It's starting to ramp yeah, up. Right. Get, you know, he says, we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up some humpbacks. <laughs> and Scotty <laughs> responds, humpback people. Which is, <laughs> that's, kind of, that's one of my next notes. It's not just a funny line. It's also a really <laughs> like. It's a really thoughtful line because, yeah, why would why he would be talking it, about? <laughs> why would he know anything about humpback whales? And you know, this is you know that this is the dub. This is the double sequel part where they're like, "We're going to do time travel. We've done it before. Slingshot around the sun." They're actually quoting an episode called "Tomorrow Is Yesterday" from the original series, mm-hmm. where they where they make the same analogy. And I just love how it's sort of like, well, you know, it's in canon. Is yeah. basically what they're saying to each other, but it doesn't feel like that. They're not making a big thing out of it. Yeah. it just it's it's like we can do this. We better do it because the Earth's about to blow up. I think a lot of sequels <laughs> make that uh, make make the mistake that this movie doesn't reference yeah. it. Don't over explain it. And it's only because they need it, right? Narratively, yeah, that right. They're doing it, and they're just you know, it's like they've gone through the their you know their cd collection and they've gone oh yeah i've got that album you know it's that's all it is right <laughs> it's right. uh i suppose we have to talk about uh time warp we're gonna have to there's this is this no. is so what do you think of this what do you think of the sequence this is the art house cinema moment of the movie it is both you're right it's both the art house cinema of the movie and also the most uh, special effects blockbuster yeah. moment of the movie yeah. simultaneously. They spent all of that budget on this. <laughs> but it, I mean, it makes historical sense, right? 1986, Industrial Light and Magic. They're like, what, five years away just, from yeah. T2. Mm-hmm. They're really just, they're road testing this technology. Right. They're like, does it, does it, does it, because it doesn't what this is, travel to What me. this is, is when somebody comes to them in five years and says, I want you to do this. Yes. And put it on screen. This, this is the computer model makeup of, this what, is on the of what they're showing the director they think they can do. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, on Star Trek, the next conversation with uh, Matt Meyer and um, Andy Secunda. Shout out. Well, it's it's one of the best podcasts out there, <laughs> um, Star Trek or otherwise. Uh, they're just starting uh, Deep Space Nine, and Matt Meyer was talking about you know the early '90s obsession with morphing. Uh huh. 
like the ability to sort of uh, with Odo being a shapeshifter and it's like all motivated around the early 90s and the technology that you're able to morph the problem is you you just you morphing is everything nobody right. does anything but morph and this is the beginning of that right it's these morphing yeah. faces yeah uh, it also reminds me they used a similar technology on a posthumous Marvin Gaye Mercy Mercy Me video. Oh. Which every time I see this, I can see uh, like watching it on VH1. It it has like other people other than Marvin Gaye, famous people, famous musicians other than Marvin Gaye, suddenly come into focus in exactly the same way. They kind of move across the frame in just exactly the same way and they appear in focus and then they have a moment like, what do you want from me? And then they disappear again. And it's so like, <laughs> so, so this is so of its time. Yeah. It's oh yeah. That, that sequence, uh, you know, uh, and, um, but as you say, like art house cinema after mm -hmm. that, we have this falling to earth. Uh, moment with water and reeds and yes. it's purely artistic yes it is it really is yes <laughs> of what's happening and again it's just like it, it just elevates it, it elevates yeah. everything and the fact that those two sequences you know these two highly experimental sequences are back to back back is right impressive. right 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 um well and, and this is like like yeah. now we're now we're in a full-blown comedy the garbage man, I'm, I presume you're talking about. Well, we have the garbage man. We have the part like I, the, the vaudeville garbage man. Yeah, and the and the line that stuck out most to about me. His wife. The line that stuck out most to me from when I first saw a preview for this movie in 1986 was, uh, "Everyone remember where we parked." Yeah. You know that That's was it. that was the selling point of this movie. That line. They see this is the thing. A good comedy has to know when to seize on the opportunity for a great one liner and never miss it. Yeah, right. That doesn't mean your film has to be packed wall to wall with one liners. Different. It's a right. different it's a different discipline. Um yeah, those garbage men, not only is it like an early reference to the Terminator, mm -hmm. it's also like, you know, the that they're in their own little vaudeville style skits. Yeah, they're 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 in their they're in their own thing. It feels you know, it starts feeling like an episode of Perfect Strangers. Yeah, <laughs> but that's it. You know that this this movie has that sitcom dimension. Yeah, right. Once we get into the, uh, you know, we meet more people from the twenty twentieth uh, late twentieth century, we see more of that. But they're also, you know, they're doing the the most. It's Star Trek, so you do the most intelligent version of a time travel story, which is you use time travel as social satire. Yeah, you know. You Mark Twain it. Um, and immediately they're like, now, 20th century was a primitive and paranoid culture. Right. Very soon they're going to say, with regard to nuclear power, how did these people ever get out of the 20th yes, century? Yes, exactly. I mean, and Kirk, Kirk's going to say, oh my God, they're still using money. <laughs> without laying it on too thick, they keep, you know, uh, everything, the way that they, the way that they get what they want the way that they achieve their goals is by exploiting the greed and materialism of the people yeah, around them. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Which I just think is, is <laughs> you know, it's absolutely perfect. And this is where, you know, the colourful metaphors start coming in, so there's that linguistic yeah. dimension. And also, you know, talk about smart time travel uh, storytelling. 
Kirk selling the glasses that yes. that Bones gave him in Wrath of Khan, That's really knowing good. full well they will be recycled <laughs> as his as the present as the present in in the future. Uh, so I mean that that hits all the notes that we're talking about. It's a callback to the second movie. Well, and, it's paradoxical storytelling. Yes. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. And what I love too is that I love I love that. Spock references it. He says, "Weren't those again from Doctor McCoy?" And he says, "Yes, and they will be again." That's the and beauty. They will be again. That's the beauty of it. And you know, speaking of, and that's you know, also it's... this is also your your line. This is when we get well a double dumbass, double on, dumbass you. on you. So good. And you know, they combine different different kinds of of comedic scenarios you know there's a general fish out of water yes comedy that's that's com- for all of them across the board that's for all of them but between kirk and spot there's the comedy of character difference right the mm-hmm. fact that they're hand they're both handling the situation of pretending to be from the 20th century differently yeah uh so we get comedy we get comedy out of that as well we also get improv genuine improv comedy when Chekhov is standing on a okay I, I was gonna ask if that's the moment you're talking about yeah. when the woman comes up yeah yeah. And you know the, you sound like you know the story behind this. I do indeed. But go okay, ahead. Okay, well, I'll just fi- I'll fill in the listeners. So so the woman when <laughs> Chekhov is standing out on the street. This is asking, the most remarkable bit of improv. Yeah. Like I, I like it's so good. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. He's standing out on the street uh and he's you know, he's saying um He's seen the nuclear vessels. It's already funny because he's replacing a W, a, a v <laughs> right? A w. But as if it wasn't funny, and you know, the extras on on set were all told to act naturally, which for ninety nine percent of them meant ignore these crazy yeah. people. <laughs> yes, exactly. But one extra who had never done this kind of work before decided she was going to engage and didn't know that they would have to pay, pay her, her and that it was like it meant a whole other thing yeah she spoke <laughs> this is this lady also had a car towed earlier that morning because yeah. of this film set uh she which engaged, i think was the only reason she was there right she wanted to pay it back she wanted to pay a ticket off um so <laughs> she engages walter koenig and gives him a straight answer says i think it's an alameda and he and it's like <laughs> Yeah, that's totally what I just character. said. He says, "That's what I just said. I said it's in Alameda." <laughs> so, you, and you know, they went to the trouble of enrolling this woman in the Screen Actors Guild because it was it. Was well, because it wasn't just him either, because Nichelle Nichols was there too, and yeah. So it's them together. So not only yes. is it a great improv moment in character, reacting to the woman, but also reacting to each other. Yes. Yeah. It's sublime. And they were right to leave it in. Yes. I'm sure it was a lot of work for someone, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's, uh, and then, you know, one of the most famous, I-, I think you talk about, you know, the, the, everyone remembered where we parked. This is the, this is the scene that everyone I knew who saw this movie talked about, which is where Spock does the Vulcan death grip on a punk rocker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's about 10 years too late musically for this guy to exist, but okay. That's um, fine. But the joke is performed and timed perfectly. Yeah, even down to the to the round the impromptu round of applause yeah. for the people in the bus. <laughs> <Right. laughs> oh, that's so good. And then and then we sort of we kind of. I like yeah. the yellow pages joke too. Yes, it is good. I don't mind that kind of product placement. Exactly. That, that right. Book yeah. Helps people. Yes. 
Um. <laughs> and I guess the family coming out of the door were actually supposed to be Sulu's family, like his great-great-great-grandfather yeah. or something like that or whatever it was, you know? But This is... Yeah, this is my... I think if there's one underdeveloped element of this film, it's the Sulu storyline, uh-huh. both in relation to that, because it's kind of implicit, but I wish they'd have gone, like, said it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I think they could have made some comedy out of what you think that that's my great-grandparents just because I'm, just because I'm Asian, you know? Right. Um, but you don't also don't explain how he gets the helicopter. <laughs> yeah, right. He just suddenly appears with a helicopter. Or gets... I mean, in my head canon, it was always that he seduced that pilot. Yeah, right. But but you know, that's about George Takai. That's not about just Zulu smoking cigarettes in the helicopter. That was nice. Let me ask and you he something. Steals the keys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. And then we sort of gently slide into uh, an after-school special about the environment. Yes. And an animal welfare. I mean, so much so that at the end of this movie, the whales can't be in the water for five minutes before yeah. the whalers are after them. And but... it's amazing. It's amazing to me, like when you see the they're at the uh, whaling in or not the whaling institute. The uh, the what whaling is the institute. We see that later, the Whaling Institute. Yeah. Um, we got to get George and Gracie as soon as they're released. Right. Uh, but they're taking a tour through this, through, you know, the, what it's like a marine, yeah, marine biology the... institute. Yeah. Uh, and there's on, there's a TV screen showing this absolute horror show of blood and gore. Yeah. <laughs> the most, the bloodiest thing we've ever seen in, a, in any Star Trek ever, including the torture in Picard. And it's permissible because it's all about educating people and activating them to do something about whaling. Yeah. And about, you know, endangered species. But if you want to look at what's if, on that screen. Yeah, it's I horrific. Mean, it, it's cannibal holocaust for whales. <laughs> well, and it's like, it's funny because it's, you know on your phone when somebody drops a pin to show you where you are? Yeah. This movie drops a pin to remind us of how much whaling was on our minds in 1986. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, this is our second time crunch, isn't it? That the whales, we find out the whales are going to be released. And this, yeah. so this change, this, this is another hurdle for these, uh, for the crew to overcome. Which I think is great because... If you don't have those, if you don't have the crystals collapsing, and you don't have the the whales being released, they could dick about in the past for as long as they want. It makes yeah. no difference. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Exactly. <laughs> they could stay there for twenty years, right? That's and great. Go back and still save the world. Uh, well, why don't we take another break? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's go. We're we're a good twenty minutes into the film. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're further along than that. We're but further still, along. We got we've got a ways to go. But we the got plenty to talk about. Offers so much. Yeah. Right. It never stops. It's 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 replete with delights. Right. So listen to the last segment coming up soon, and then watch it. That'll be the last segment. We'll, we'll see. Fun. Yeah. We'll right see, after this. Pretty heavy <laughs> credit check going on here. All right. We'll be right back.
If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. Here we are, back once again, talking about Star Trek for The Voyage Home. I think we love this movie, don't we? I really do. Uh, I just, I just think it's it's a remarkable achievement. <laughs> We're coming up on like some of my favorite stuff in the movie. When yes, so Spock and Kirk are at the Oceanographic Institute or whatever it yes. is, the Whaling Institute, the yes. Whaling Institute, <laughs> and. I think I mentioned this in our in our. You rank- really shouldn't be working there. I know. Yeah, I I mentioned this in our ranking episode. You know, sometimes you see an actor do something when you're an actor, and you see an actor do something in your life, and you th- your first thought is, "Man, I wish I could do it that good." Yeah. <laughs> and Shatner has one of those moments for me, and it's when when Leonard Nimoy goes down to t- yeah. to talk to the whales, and he's doing the mind meld, and the look. Just the sheer look on Chatner's yeah. face. It's all physical comedy. It is. With but again hand to the forehead, hand to the mouth, the absolute honesty with which it appears yeah. he is seeing this for the first time. It's it's like comedic gold to me. I love it so yeah. much. But it, it's authentic to who they are as characters and, and right. how they handle situations differently. That's like the act, you're, you're absolutely right, it's performed perfectly, but it's only funny in the first place because because of who those two people are right. and we know them to be. Uh, it's all, I, I think, I think it's, a, I also think it's a little bit of a shout out to the, um, to the female Trekkies who find Spock irresistibly sexy because there was always a, like in, <laughs> in the sex symbol camp, you were either a, you're either Shatner or, or Nimoy. Oh, really? So there was like a, a Twilight thing going a lot on? Of wim- a lot of women out there who went big for... Oh, and men who went big for... I didn't um, know. I don't think I Spock. ever... I think That that's was not on my his... radar. I think that's why he's in his underwear. Yeah. I really do. Well, I just but... wouldn't... I. It makes complete sense to me that he takes off a big heavy robe when he goes underwater. Yeah, well, why is he wearing the robe in the first place? Is the other the other question? Because underneath he's just wearing a diaper and a tank top. Well, yeah, now we know that, but we didn't know that before. <laughs> and of course, and then he wouldn't have had access to a headband. Yeah, right. To Rambo up, <laughs> he needed to Rambo up. Which is a, another reference to I think "City on the Edge of Forever," where he covers up his uh, Vulcan ears. Oh wow. They go back Man, to you have a better memory for episodes than I do. I, I, I just, I just, I told you, I just watched it all. Yeah, 
This is this is recent memory for me. Okay. Uh, he wears like a he wears a what do you call it a a bobble hat over his ears, mm. and they have it. There's a, there's a funny scene. It's either that is that I maybe that's not City on the Edge of Forever, but there's a joke about he his ears were my friend is Chinese and his ears were cut in a mechanical rice picking accident. <laughs> oh my god! I know. Fuck. Which is still funny, albeit quite racist. Um, I, I mean, for me, every every you know, talking about perfect acting, perfect timing, the pickup truck scene. Yes. Where Jillian and the button up. with the Italian food. Oh my god! You, I think you could massacre that, right? Yes. Like if you did that wrong, you could. Massacre this is what I was referencing when I was talking about the chemistry between the actors. Yes. Earlier between Shatner and Nimoy, because this I don't think it was in the script. I think they came up with it on the spot. I read. Yeah. And they neither one knew what the other was going to (laughs) say. So, again, we're talking about an improv and they're so good. But isn't isn't that I mean, you know, I'm I'm no I'm no improv expert, but it but isn't isn't that like the first tenet of improv is that you stay true to the characters. You can't go wrong. Right. You don't need like to say the funniest line. You don't need to think beyond what you're saying. You just need to be true to whoever it is you are in that in that sketch, and that's what they're both doing. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, it's also a turning point scene because this is where we find out that the whales are pregnant. Right. So it's an important scene. It's not. It gives information comedy. exactly. Yeah. Right. It's not extra. Gracie comedy. is pregnant. And speak, speaking of, of but, but then on the flip side, speaking of extraneous comedy that is in the movie that works incredibly well, we go over to the fact to the plastic factory. Oh my God. Where, where Scotty and Bones are involved in the most elaborate in-world improv sketch I've ever seen. <laughs> where Scotty is a professor from Scotland. They've messed up the timing. No one has got in touch and told them that yeah. he's coming. But everyone is like playing it as if it's real. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Bo- like Scotty looks genuinely angry. Bones looks like he's genuinely trying to calm him down. Yeah. And they win over this guy. It's like House of Games or something. It's, <laughs> it's this um, David Mametian long David Mametian. That's amazing. Well, I love the moment too because they, they, they kind of they talk they comment on it because I love when Bones gets yes. on the little scooter thing or the little uh you know whatever they're on and he says don't lose yourself in the role it's i mean yeah so good that's great and also a callback to wrath of khan where they're doing the simulation and bones is hamming it up yeah it's like he's it's like he's learned the lesson from kirk in that moment And you know, well we're also at the scene where you were speaking to earlier where they're preying upon the greed of Yes, absolutely. You know. Not now, Madeline. <laughs> right. They're preying on they're preying on the greed of Reaganite America. Yeah. Uh, which is the sat- satirical dimension. Also, and you know, th- it, it lend the the Hello Computer scene, which we talked about uh, briefly. Yeah. It lends credence to the adage that uh, good comedy doesn't date, mm-hmm. because the meaning of that joke. No, no, not the meaning of that joke. The the idea, the, the flow of that, I, I, so I have the best to put it. The 
the variables, that's it. The variables of that joke have changed historically, but the joke is as funny. Yeah, right. So now we're laughing at how quaint and primitive that Apple computer looks and the fact that Scotty, this guy from the future, doesn't know how to work it. In 1986, people, this is like top of the line. Mm -hmm. And so the joke is that, you know, he looks like he's out of date, but in fact, he's too advanced. He's to too know advanced this... to know what the hell this clunky thing so does. The, the bones of that joke work when yeah. you're watching it in 1986 or 2022. I, and I, I really do think it's like that is textbook good comedy, right? When the he's saying computer, you see it because he wants a voice response computer. Yes. And when Bones hands him the mouse, so I he know. speaks into the mouse. It's just, yeah, that is great 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 com that's a bit and it's a great bit it's a great bit that will be a great bit forever forever right despite the fact that you know there's a dated computer in the middle of it <laughs> yes doesn't matter <laughs> that doesn't hold back the comedy no and you know this again leonard Nimoy, by the way director- i think i read that transparent aluminum has since become a real thing i wouldn't be surprised yeah another great piece of paradoxical uh storytelling um, what's quite funny is how irreverently they treat paradoxes in this versus the the later Star Trek. Mm-hmm. We're a long way here. They're just like, whatever. We've created a giant paradox. Right. We need to get those whales back, right? That's the, they just keep doing it all the place. But you know, later in Star Trek canon, there will be a temporal prime directive that will forbid them for doing things like that. Yeah. For, for exactly the reason that they're doing it. It's like, well, okay, so what if this guy invented trans- this, this, this schlub who just quit smoking? Yeah. What if he... <laughs> well, there are because there are a lot of moments in this movie where the space-time continuum doesn't matter to anyone. Chekhov just throws yeah. his fucking communicator or his uh, phaser yeah. at a government spook kind of guy and just runs out of the building. He just leaves that shit there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it, he. They, they treat they treat uh, the past as Superman treats space. Yes, exactly. A dumping ground <laughs> exactly. for anything they don't want and don't have time for. <laughs> and I mean the 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 pizza restaurant scene is mm-hmm. another another classic, right? It's full of classic one line, full of the unbelievably good one liners. Oh, I'm from Iowa. I just work in outer space. Exactly. So good. The undercurrent of it is, you know, he comes from a future where the excesses of the 1980s have been cast off. Yeah. So it's all about how big the pizza is, how many toppings are on it, you know, drinking while you eat. I love the fact that Shatner fits in a Michelob commercial in the middle of the scene. Yes, I was just going to say the beer. Yes, the beer. He is, he is literally the man who will advertise anything. <laughs> he, 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 the way he, the way he drinks that, that this this period specific white beer is like <laughs> like it is the nectar of the gods. <laughs> um, I so it, it's just it's it's perfect. It's just it's great. It's great storytelling. Um, lines that are less perfect. Of course, he's a Rusky, but he must be a retard or something. Yeah, yeah. Don't need it now. Don't that that I doesn't that doesn't, doesn't age well. Going. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's uh, like it's literally the I think maybe the only unfortunate experience you have yeah. while watching the movie is that one line. Yeah. Once you're through that, you're like, phew. 
now I can now I can enjoy I can, myself. I, <laughs> we've exactly. had the we've had the R word. Okay, yeah. I can go on. I can, I can, I can go on. I, I can live in peace. And meanwhile, you know, as as if this as if this film wasn't sort of firing on all cylinders, we're still we're continuing the storyline about testing Spock's humanity. Like, yes. is he gonna grow? Is he gonna grow into his human side? Mm-hmm. Because he's faced with the dilemma: is do we leave a man behind, even though it's the illogical thing to do? Right, you yeah. know, it's sort of like says Bonds basically says, "Haven't you got any goddamn feelings about that?" Interesting that 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 McCoy's dialogue is full of cut of colorful metaphors, right? Not affected by period. No, yeah, right. he had those before he arrived. <laughs> um, I think it's also it's a testament because che- Chekhov is captured and injured. He's the whipping boy of the series. Nothing surprising about no, that. No, yeah, right. But I just like you see at this point that their that their mission is to keep things light. Because it's a, it's an armed foot chase on a nuclear submarine that ends in a fatal head injury, and the music is. Yeah, exactly. There's literally you feel like Nemo's behind the camera going, "Keep it light, guys! Keep it light! We don't want another David's death or Enterprise blowing up on our hands." Colbert does that on his show. Light it up! Just come on. <laughs> that that's uh and then you know sulu appears with the with the helicopter and we've got to do a a wiper gag because right you know he can't be trusted with manual because he's asian um <laughs> <laughs> and we get a call back to the same racist gag in the next film uh yeah uh, oh, i'm we're done we're back in the hospital bones finally has so yeah he's do. he's got his he's got his moment as if this, as if this screenplay wasn't tailored to the strengths of the cast. But it's very, you know, it doesn't disappoint. It's it, the like this is as broad as the movie gets, where it's like Keystone cops. Yeah. They're on gurneys. They're being chased. They're pushing people over. You know, guys on crutches or canes yeah. are falling into chairs. Grandmas. But you never feel like the movie doesn't have a grip on that absurdity. No. Yeah. Absolutely. The, you the you line, referenced the, the 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 new kidney, yes, grandma, uh, just yeah. passing into frame where, <laughs> and I just love that you just hear two lines from two doctors, yeah, who aren't even in frame, like their faces aren't in frame, yeah, right? they're exactly. what you know what I mean, yeah, uh, they, marveling yeah. at how I don't know it just happened or you know whatever the line like, and you as her a scans are clear about this, right? yeah, exactly you about this as a view. But there's a line in here that tells me that this movie understands how ridiculous this scene is. It's when Captain Kirk says, "Doctor, such unprofessional behavior. Into that little room, please." <laughs> right. <laughs> like we know what we're doing. We know we we know that, like you said, we're doing Keystone Cops here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the punch, you know, and the punchline is is perfect. Um, at that point, uh, I love the fact that like <laughs> this movie wants to puncture the yuppie culture in all its manifestations. So when they take when the when the bird of prey takes off, it knocks over some joggers. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, right. It's like we don't. Need, it's like we've already punctured Reagan's America. We don't need to like <laughs> to like literally floor some yuppies. Yeah. I would be very much surprised if that shot of the ship flying through the clouds didn't eventually become the Quantum Leap titles. (laughs) So Um, we got to get 
We got to get the whales. Well, the timeline on the whales has changed. Yes, because... I love the fact we started off by saying, you know, people say it's the one about whales. I don't think I've said the word whales more in my life than I have in the last hour. Right. <laughs> there is a lot of whale in this movie. Yeah. It's a whale of a good time. Well, and I, the one thing that always struck me about this movie, too, was it it feels implausible that you would have these two giant whales yeah. in captivity at all. Right. And, yes. and they, they cover it. They cover it by trying to say, this is the largest tank in the history yeah. of the world. <laughs> but there ain't no tank that, could, that would do anything but kill these two whales. Yeah, you know, but but, but I, I, I forgive the movie that... all of it because it's conscious of that and is saying, you know, they have to go, they got to go. It's part of the storyline. It's part of the storyline, and it, it it sort of it reminds me a lot of of you know the 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 ludicrous storylines of screwball comedies. Uh huh. I think that's the lineage of this. So you break down bringing up baby. <laughs> There's two identical leopards running amok. Uh, you know, in in a in a chase for a a lost dinosaur bone, the dog is buried. You know, I mean, it's nonsense. Yeah, right. And I feel like that's what we're tapping into here. There's two whales from the past that need to go to the future for some reason. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we you were when then we get into full Moby Dick territory where yeah. the, we. T- the, I referenced the, it a earlier. A bird of prey, not even the Enterprise, yeah. takes on <laughs> a whaling ship. <laughs> and this is another, like you know, another callback to the naval history of the of the series. But with, it's like this appears to be they appear to have gone back in time even further to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. These fucking whalers are straight out of Herman Melville. Yeah, They're right. Not, they don't look like it doesn't look like a modern look like 1986 whalers. <laughs> That's great. And you know, there's, you know, I, I think Star Trek always had this educational activist mold. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they say mankind was destroying his own future. Yeah. You know, they took the, the metaphor of, of, of um, environmentalism is turned into a literal reality. Mm-hmm. And that hits harder in 2022 when we're past the point where we can do anything about certain environmental certain issues. environmental problems yeah yeah we're past the point of no return and that line really hits out it's like yeah in 1986 it was still a metaphor but we're now in the era where it is the literal reality that they're talking of, that they're talking about in the 23rd century when these animals don't exist anymore right <sighs> no i got you but on the plus side, Jillian gets to go to the 23rd century. She sure does. She hops onto Sp- uh, Spock. She hops onto Kirk and says, surprise. Fuck Strange New Worlds. This is the spinoff I want to see. Yeah. Jillian in the 23rd century. She did Star Trek story. <laughs> I always kind of wish that she came back in some way, shape, or form in one of the next but movies. That Like, it's such... It's a double bummer when, um, when Shatner, like... Shatner has that terrible I don't even have your phone number line. Yeah. And then you realize these two are never going to see each other again. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh god, we don't need any of this. This is this is pointless. <laughs> or there's that part of you that says to yourself, I mean, come on, Kirk hasn't even had sex with her yet. 
Right. That's his that MO. We, we don't know what happened between That's true. the pizza restaurant and the... <laughs> I'll tell you what happened between the pizza restaurant and the getting of the whales. An entire another enterprise was built. During... Uh, you're not going <laughs> to... During a crisis in which the planet was going to die because of the probe. Again, we don't... We don't know. But we're not even quite there yet because we're no. we we have to deal with the time travel coming back. They don't do the art house cinema a second time. I like that. Yeah, I good like. Yo, oh, very good choice. Don't want to see it again. Don't need to see it again. We saw it once already. Don't have the money for it. Yeah, we know. We we know what happened. <laughs> the faces. The faces. Yeah. Fa- some faces <laughs> came out and went back into some kind of substance. Yeah, and a a. An Anthony Gormley statue fell to earth. But what I also like about it is this <laughs> idea of we're still developing the Spock character because yeah. in order to get back, he has to make a guess. Right. And, and just the idea that Bones has the wherewithal to say, you know, it doesn't seem like Kirk cares, but he has to t- he has to remind Spock he'll take your guess against anybody else's fact. Love yeah, that. and you know when when confronted with the fact that he, that that his behavior is human, he says nobody's perfect, which right. coincidentally is the last line of "Some Like It Hot." Yeah, and I think this movie is tapping into that great tradition of Hollywood comedy, mm. uh, and it's it's up that to me it's absolutely up there with them. I, as you said, we don't we don't you know we don't have an elaborate time travel scene to get us back we just see it go stays close on the sun we're back yeah all we it is literally all we need and it's all the movie's gonna give us right um and then they do something which i think is really smart time catches up with itself in the 23rd century mm-hmm. we get the, the the last shot we saw we see again we see again uh but and then immediately the problem is kind of yeah fixed um, well, all they needed was the whales, Tom. I don't know. It takes a while. Those whales are chatting it up. The whale and the probe are chatting it up for a while. I like a that this too long. I would say. I, I, li- <laughs> I like that this whole movie basically hinges on the whale saying, "Hey, what the fuck you doing up there? Yeah. What I'm just we doing my thing. No more. You're about to kill all these people. <laughs> oh, my bad. Let me, me retract <laughs> the ball up into the probe, and I'll get the fuck out of here." They're basically saying new phone who dis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but not before the you know the ship turns into a submarine. Nope. And Kirk, of course, has to save the day. Yeah. Because it's still a Star Trek movie, and Kirk still Nimoy has to have is, this. Nimoy is going to give Shatner his moment. Right. That doesn't. That he doesn't Not reciprocate in the next movie, of course. <laughs> But but it, this really is a sense of like you know we've got to find a way for Kirk to have his hero moment, mm-hmm. which is he releases the catch that you know releases the whales. Releases the whales, and I think that's again that's good. Like well, he also like, says it's like we know we're making a different kind of movie, but that doesn't mean we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, because he he also um, saves Scotty and Jillian. So Scotty and Jillian. I gotta say the cast look absolutely drenched here. They legitimately, probably for the last time in the franchise, look like they're going through what their characters are going through. Yeah, but they also look like they were having fun trying to drown each other. 
and that just adds to the feel-good quality of it, yeah, right? Exactly. You, you know everyone's <laughs> having fun. You know that when James Doohan dives into the water, everyone is just laughing because Big Fat Scotty just created a giant splash. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what's great that like you can see Nimoy holding back a smile. Yeah, exactly. And he's put and he, and he, he he's probably in his head he's going. Spock's not supposed to smile. Mm-hmm. I have one job. He doesn't smile. Right. Okay. We've broken that rule before. I don't want to break it again because then the Trekkies will get on my back. <laughs> so he's just like, so he does this thing, which is great, where he's smiling, but also wiping water away from his face. Like, I'm not smiling. Yeah. I'm just cringing at the amount of water on my face. <laughs> and then, you know, we have the first, well, this isn't even the ending, but it's the first of two happy endings. But this is the first of two happy endings from the first three films. Yeah, right. Both the last two films end on a downer. It's like every... And you can see visibly... I mean, we'll, we'll get the bigger feel-good moment uh, in the at the very end of the movie. But this is almost as good as that because the actors and the characters are obviously just having so much fun. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you want to see. It's exactly what Nimoy set out to do. Right. Um, and then we're back in court. Because well, so we're back Star in Trek court. Wants to put Kirk on trial. Yeah. We're back in court, but what we're going to do is we're going to stay within the rules of the given universe that they're in, but give you the yeah. most satisfying ending possible for a man who's been found guilty. <laughs> Listen, I don't know what your definition of good screenwriting is, but wrapping up a trilogy of storytelling with one line has got to be up there. It's got to be close, right? The command of a starship yeah. ties together three films of storytelling. I, I mean... It's some good it's shit. Perfection, right? Yeah. The, when, when, when Spock says to Kirk in Wrath of Khan, at the beginning of Wrath of Khan, you know, you should be... Paraphrasing here, you should be a captain. You should, yeah, right. The command of a starship is what you do. It's what you're, it's what you're built for. It's what yeah. you, you know, it's who you are. That establishes, we don't know it at the time, that establishes a story promise that is fulfilled. In this movie. At the end of this at movie. At the end of this movie. Uh, so all, all charges are summarily dismissed except for yeah. the disobeying a direct order. And that which means he's lo- going to be demoted from Admiral to Captain. Yeah, which and we know is, is a promotion for him. For him. Yeah. For everyone, but for, for him... Um, in the middle of this as well, Spock and Sarek. Yeah. We have a reunion of two major legacy characters in a scene that, in its own way, in its own kind of repressed Vulcan way, moves forward their relationship so significantly from from what we've seen. Well, I mean, and it builds on what we saw with his mother. Because he says, what, tell yeah. my mother I'm, I feel fine. <laughs> but the last, you know, the last time those these two met... These two had dialogue together. Was journey, journey to Babel. Wow, really? Yeah. So this is huge. I mean, this is you, the, the and these guys do not get on, right? <laughs> these guys. This is like a strained relationship. So this is that's like a big deal. We'll learn more about that in the next movie. Oh, and we'll never stop learning about it either. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the sh- I was, no, yeah. Uh, they they <laughs> not only do they fix the narrative problems of 
Star Trek the motion picture, they also fixed the visual problems when the shuttle goes into the space dock. And now the scale of passengers is proportional to the craft right. for the first time ever. Right. It doesn't look like they're in some giant funhouse mirror inside <laughs> the shuttle like it did in the motion picture. That's great. And they even, this is, this is like, like they even have a pop at the sociocultural limitations of their own time period. And they talk about the bureaucratic mentality never changes. Right. Isn't that, I mean, that's like something Mark Twain would come up with. <laughs> it's beautiful. And, and, you know, again, as you said perfectly, the this movie or these films forget nothing. Yeah. And Scotty has still got a major beef about the Excelsior. <laughs> he does. Traveling back in time and saving the world has not changed right. anything. <laughs> he he's fully expects to be put on the Excelsior as a punishment. Um, so there's a sense that we're wrapping everything up. He's still calling it a bucket of bolts. Way. Yeah. Um, New Enterprise. Yeah. Again. Somehow in built. Of itself, in and of itself, nothing wrong with it. As a precedent, dangerous. <laughs> we have a dangerous, we're setting a dangerous precedent of replacement enterprises. Yeah. <laughs> but this works for me. I mean, this is. Of course I mean, it works. Yeah. I it mean... doesn't. It, it does. There's no right. way it could be built, but who gives a shit? It's too satisfying for you to ever yeah. give a shit. It's possibly a too big a oversight in a film which is unless about like time travel. Yeah. <laughs> so unless there's unless there's like a two to five year span between when yeah. Kirk is talking to Catherine Hicks and when they're being assigned a new ship, it doesn't make sense. But you, no. there's no way you care. No, it's it, and again, it's like it goes back to what I was saying about the the both the past both the past two movies. You know, the motion picture was so much just it, it's like you're supposed to see something in space dock that is just there, like like nothing is happening at space dock. You're supposed to be impressed by just seeing it. Yeah, but each of these films has given us some narrative event that's happening in space dock. Yeah. that grabs our attention and actually allows us to see the splendor of it, but is actually working towards the story and is of some dramatic interest. Of course. And so this is a huge deal. The, the first new Enterprise, first of, I don't know, six or seven, but, it's, <laughs> but let's just, you know, for the moment, it's just like, wow. Yeah. It's not a refit. And it does There's feel special. Yeah. New Enterprise. And the first thing they do in the next film is uh, ruin it. Um, <laughs> let's not talk about that because we're ending on a high. Um, I'm at the credits. I don't know if you have anything. No, yeah. I I, uh, I was just about to say, what uh, credit checks do you have for us? Uh, stills from the film. I was gonna, Well, actually, yeah. I was going to say that my last note is photos of what we just saw. Must have talked. Must have talked to Stallone. Uh, well, more than that, um, <laughs> the, uh, is it, is it Rocky five that, yeah. so the final shot of the credits is also the final shot of the movie seen again. So like right. Rocky five, we've seen the entire movie all over again in the credits, <laughs> but this also, you know, this is also reminiscent of how sitcoms work, right? This is like, it feels like a, a TV sitcom way mm -hmm. of exiting, uh, the, the installment. 
San Diego connection here, which I don't know if you know about. Mm. Um, Talk to me. Uh, a bit part in this movie played by uh, the artistic director of North Coast Repertory Theatre, David Allenstein. Oh, wow. Which is up in Solana Beach, which yeah. is in our neck of the woods. Um, and his father, Robert Evelstein, Ellenstein, plays the president of uh, of Starfleet. The fit. Oh, nice. Also, might also remember the him from North by Northwest, but he's one of the mm-hmm. doctors in the elevator. Mm. So, um, sped up B roll of the operations room, not to my liking. <laughs> I don't think we need to go back into live action. <laughs> here's here's where the matte painting comes back again. Uh-huh. My first thought when I saw the Bird of Prey matte painting was, that looks like a R- Ralph Macquarie concept art. <laughs> because it is. Oh, really? <laughs> Ralph Macquarie is listed as visual consultant. That oh is my totally God. his matte painting. That's funny. That is to- Because the first thing I thought was the Star Wars concept art that yeah. Ralph Macquarie did. Um, uh, the acknowledgement section could simply read, going back to your earlier point, the military-industrial complex. Yeah, right. <laughs> which is kind of ironic given the post-military... I saw that. Uh, ide- ...ideology of Star Trek. Right. It's like, this movie is impossible without, without the military Without the military. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's basically all I had. Again, a, a non- non-funny, non-funny, entirely trivia-based note. Michael Akuda and uh, Nancy Nimoy involved in the effects and creature work. Uh, so just reminding us, Star Trek is this very... Cl- it's a big franchise, but it's a very close-knit family. Yeah. You know, same same few directors, same few special effects people. Um, so that's that's all I have. That was, that's. Uh, and they, got, they get it either right or they get it uh, not so right. I, th- I would say so. This is interesting. I don't think the effects go backwards in this movie, but I think they plateau a little bit. Mm. But there's that's the, the the emphasis of this movie is not. It's not on effects, so no. You have your you have your showstopper sequence, which is the the morphing faces. Yeah. And the kind of they're, they're pegging all their effects work on that, but the rest of it is kind of it's just pedestrian, you know. Yeah. It's not. If you project it on a big screen, it doesn't look great, but it also doesn't look like it does in the next movie when they. I was just gonna say, when they cut ILM out of the picture and let one guy do it all, and gave him half the time he thought he was going to have <laughs> to do all the effects. But I would say I think three was more, was a more of an impressive leap in effects than uh, than this one. I think it's just it's yeah, just there, yeah. There's there's a lot in this that looks uh, doesn't doesn't look dynamic. Even just seeing a ship in space, yeah, sitting there, it often looks not real. <laughs> just sort of, I, yeah, you know, it this, like kind of just sits there. Yeah, and and conversely, I'd say this movie is outstanding from a sound editing perspective. Hmm. So many of the, well of nominated, the gags. yeah. So many of the gags land uh, just because of the se- the sound editing is right. Yeah, right. Um, so, I mean, so I'm not I'm not detracting from it. Look, but let's not pre- let's not pretend this was a huge advance in right. special effects. <laughs> but for those listening at home, you know, this is Tom's top. This is top of his list. This is my second 
and a close second to Wrath of Khan. If you think of this movie as the one with the whales, we're telling you, go back and uh, give it another shot because this is, as you've, have you, as you've stated several times, this is comedy at, at, at sort of its highest level. It's so good. And I would remind people that Star Trek and time travel doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's a mix has a mixed record because once we again it's like the blowing up enterprises. Once we start, we can't stop. Mm-hmm. And it has a very mixed record throughout the remaining canon. So this this is this is an example of that storyline working at its height. And of the nadir of this is Star Trek uh, um, Picard season two, which still haven't hate, seen it yet. Which I hate to hate to say this but also features kirk thatcher as a punk on a bus playing punk rock no music yes so but two different time travel it's so funny uh, you say that because i took note of his name this time when i was watching the credits and he's the works behind the scenes as well he is a member of the crew i think he is the sound editor actually oh my god that's oh, he's amazing definitely, he definitely works on sound um all right any, two, uh, more, two more different appropriations of, of yeah. storytelling you could not find, but they're ostensibly the same story. Uh, anything left for you? No, that's it. All right, friend. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Up next, I guess we're going to try to convince you that The Final Frontier might not be quite as bad as you think or yeah. remember. So stay tuned for that. That's the next episode coming up. For Tom, <laughs> that that's a better subtitle. Isn't yeah, it, it Star is. Trek Five. It's not, not as quite bad as, as, bad as, as you, you remember. <laughs> for Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. As I said, you'll hear us next time. We'll be talking Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier. Say goodbye, Tom. The doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. The doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. (laughs) That lady had one job. And she did it. She did that job. Yeah. She did that job to... She did it perfectly. Well, not quite death, to to life. I half expected her to say, where's the beef? All right, ladies and gentlemen. I would love if she was paid, like if she was paid with a new kidney. <laughs> the actress. <laughs> she was like, "I wonder when that paycheck's getting here because I got bills to pay." As Ding it dong, happens, and I, there's I, a cooler at the door. Yeah, I have a bad <laughs> kidney, so if you'd like to pay me in kidney, I I I would really appreciate it. All hey, right. If if that woman if that woman in the in the nuclear wessel scene was was an improv accident. Maybe this was just a woman who was a kidney patient. It's so good. That DeForest Kelly so, was so, extra. so good. Ladies and gentlemen, watch also, Star Trek I, for the voyage home again. I gotta say, I gotta say, I just want to give, give, not that I need to give extra credit, but I want to give credit to DeForest Kelly for going up to that woman in the hospital scene going, what's wrong with you? <laughs> That's 23rd century bedside manner right there. Yep. What's wrong with you? That's perfect. All right. We'll be back. Take care, everyone.